Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. July 30th marks the 20th anniversary of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, one of the most consequential pieces of federal financial regulation ever enacted into law. And it's the foundation for many of the guidelines and principles that are now considered routine by boards and their audit, compensation, and finance committees, to name a few. Sarbanes was the byproduct of a series of monumental corporate collapses in 2001 and 2002, including companies like WorldCom, Global Crossing, and Enron. Together, they threatened the sanctity of the U.S. financial system and exposed fault lines in the established corporate governance framework. So Sarbanes addressed a broad spectrum of factors that contributed to the scandals. The law formalized oversight of the accounting profession adopted measures to improve the integrity of financial statement quality, prohibited interference with the audit process, and created a framework for financial officers' codes of ethics. It also enhanced disclosure rules, created greater executive accountability for financial reports, strengthened board independence, and increased auditor independence standards. It's difficult to overstate the continuing impact of Sarbanes on corporate governance as well. That's why it's so important for board members unfamiliar with the Sarbanes environment to appreciate its history and its influence, and to help us address that influence and that history and the future of corporate responsibility principles. We're joined by our old friend, Scott Steffens. Scott is a well-known audit partner in Grant Thornton's national not-for-profit in higher education practice. Scott has more than 30 years experience working with many large exempt organizations and also sits on two boards and one audit committee himself. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Happy to be here. Let's start with some big picture background. To you, does Sarbanes still make a difference? Is it still important for board members to be familiar with or is it ancient history at this point? I think it still becomes a very important element of good governance. So we continue to learn good practices from what was established now 20 years ago and uh, continues to make for good conversation in and around audit committees when they self-assess and try to determine, you know, are they achieving their objectives and, uh, you know, getting done what they need to get done. Very recently, I've had conversations with committees pointing out the fact that we are at the 20th anniversary of Sarbanes-Oxley and there's, you know, lots of reason to continue to challenge you know, the current work that they're doing and and continuing to challenge the types of things that are you know either being added or taken away from their charters as they go forward. So certainly, uh, you know, continues to be a, an element of good governance here. In and I certainly agree with you. You know, Scott, I'd like to pick your brain on how auditor and management and audit committee interactions have changed over the last 20 years. I think especially with respect to healthcare companies and nonprofits that, that you work with, why don't we start with the audit committee? What's been changing there? What what are the big picture changes? Because I think it's important again for audit committee for committee members and board members generally to understand the connection between the changes and the statute. Sure, I think we've certainly seen you know much more formalization as to what audit committees were tasked to do. So better development of charters, you know, better identification of you know, what types of things they're going to cover, when they're going to cover them, a better annual schedule so that it was very clear, you know, what was included under the purview of the audit committee. Uh, In addition, you know, making sure that the right members comprise the audit committee. You know, the joke used to be if you missed a board meeting, you were named the audit committee chair. And now there there needs to be... 
Right. Now that now there needs to be, you know, an identified financial expert. And while you know that's defined under our under Sarbanes Oxley, you know, most large uh, complicated exempt organizations, healthcare organizations are certainly taking that that assignment you know, seriously and identifying someone that either is a perhaps a partner at a large accounting firm, you know, CPA, CFO from large organization to make sure they really understand you know, what the uh, audit committee has set out uh, to do. So, you know, making sure that they've got the right financial experts is certainly something that, you know, has become, you know, much of a priority for audit committees today. Anything about the charters? Have you think the, the specificity of committees in terms of their the degree of delegation from the full board, has that changed at all? Sure. I think that, you know, there continues to be good discussion there, you know, where wherever there's a discussion of, you know, adding or taking something away from the audit committee. And, you know, there's often blurred lines between finance committees and audit committees and what roles uh, each of the two of them uh, should play. Uh, I think in some of the best boardrooms I've been at, you know, the audit committee has been very careful to say that's within our purview, we're going to cover it, or that's you know in the purview of another committee, let's let them uh, tackle those issues. And I think that you know the, the clearer the charter, the lower the likelihood of any misunderstanding in terms of you know, what is ultimately responsible for the, the particular committee. Out of curiosity, Scott, what are you seeing in terms of audit committees? Are they taking on more responsibilities? Are they limiting them? Uh, or do you see them unhooking the compliance function or keeping it? I think they're def- definitely looking for that linkage, right? So for things like compliance, you know, making sure that they understand, for example, what are the underlying compliance requirements for the organization and making sure that they understand you know, what uh, the organization is doing to make sure that those compliance requirements are, are met. My experience would suggest that you know, audit committees look to make sure they take on the right responsibilities, but not too much. But anything that involves any kind of external reporting that could have any type of financial implication and in, in the form of compliance, it could be you know fines or you know issues of uh, certainly bad publicity. So the committee you know certainly you know looking to make sure that they understand what those uh, requirements may be. And going back to the Sarbanes principle, Scott, do you see committees, uh, audit committees, considering how often the frequency with which they meet and the length of time of their meetings? Yeah, I know that it's a good question because I think, you know, we see both this as a, a positive and a possible opportunity for improvement in the audit committee world. We've got, you know, some audit committees that are very good about setting their meetings, you know, year in advance. This is when we're going to meet. This is what we're going to talk about at these meetings. This is how much time we're going to allow for each of the topics. And we're not going to try to, you know, jam uh, three hours of material into a very short period of time. Uh, there still are those committees that, you know, just because of the busyness of the schedule of board members, the audit committee is scheduled for a fixed amount of time, and there's a, an immediate meeting right afterwards. There's not a lot of opportunity for meetings to go long. And I think when I think about committees where, you know, you want to make sure there's great open access between the management and the board and the auditors, you know, audit committee is one where it'd be great if they could all be accomplished in 10 minutes, but sometimes, you know, they take two hours and there's good healthy executive sessions that need to be baked into the schedule. Again, as we look at the, you know, the one opportunity, it would be making sure there's the right amount of time allowed for you know, good, healthy discussion for, I would call it at least two times a year, once to talk about an audit plan, once to talk about audit results. And, and last but not least is just making sure that the committee members have enough time to read materials. Board members are often very busy people. They've got more than one full-time job that might be on a couple of different boards themselves giving them materials the night before and expecting them to read them in and amongst an already busy day is not reasonable. And also, you know, last minute changes to meetings, as you and I both know, you're scheduled out many weeks in advance and trying to maneuver schedules to make audit committees work on a new day is not easy for everyone to do. And that jeopardizes, 
you know, having a good quorum and therefore, you know, good, healthy discussion at those meetings. Uh, continuing along with the Sarbanes principle, Scott, do you see any opportunities for audit committees to increase their responsibility and increase their focus? You know, what, what should they be doing again to refine their scope, given the impact and the message of Sarbanes? You know, I think the you know regular you know review of members of the committee, you know, making sure that you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's a good uh, financial expert, and that there you know may be some healthy rotation of committee members, either those that you know want to move on to other committees, or you know it's time for them to you know they they've had trouble making the meetings, and it's just not a priority for them. So regular review of the composition of the committee, uh, and then also just regular review of the. Uh, charter. Um, and, you know, you and I have worked on a number of charters with mutual clients for many years. You know, they don't need to be, you know, dozens of pages long, but they need to be specific to a point of making sure it's clear as to what the, the committee needs to be looking at. And, you know, as things evolve, you know, perfect example is, you know, if you and I were talking 20 years ago about cyber risk, we wouldn't be as focused as we are today. So, you know, what should the audit committee's interest be in understanding cyber risk to an organization? That's obviously something you know today that's much more prevalent you know than it was when when Sarbanes came out. So an example of where you know the the charters can continue to be enhanced as the underlying environment changes. What about the communication, Scott, between uh, inside counsel, the committee, and the outside auditor with respect to the management letter? Oftentimes, because the management letter seems to become more important with every year in passing. Sure. And, you know, and here we're talking about, you know, to the extent the auditor has you know, recommendations that are significant enough to communicate by the auditor standards to the audit committee. You know, the standards would require that that must be you know, communicated in writing to the audit committee, you know, normally in the form of presentation to the committee. And oftentimes the committee gets a copy of the written letter that includes what the auditor has recommended. Uh, what management's response is, and then in the subsequent year would identify you know, what the you know, remediation plan was and, and if it was, in fact, you know, successful to get things remediated. And in those cases, that should be baked in as part of the communication. And to the extent there isn't anything to communicate, the audit committee you know, should, should confirm that with the auditor as well. Let's pivot to a question that seems to be getting a little bit of press these days, and that's the whole question of auditor independence. Can you kind of summarize what the Sarbanes focus was on the whole auditor independence rule and and maybe a little bit about why that's coming up again these days? Sure. You know, the concept originally was just making sure that, you know, the auditor, you know, hired primarily as the independent auditor of the organization, that, you know, the auditor wasn't in any way having their independence you know, uh, challenged by doing you know other work for organizations, namely you know consulting type projects that might be you know fees in excess you know of multiple times what the audit fees were, that you know, might in some way make the audit part of the engagement you know look the other way if there was a problem because they didn't want to put you know any of that work uh, in jeopardy. So the you know as the standards have evolved, you know for public companies it's very clear what the you know, outside auditor can and can't do with respect to underlying organizations without impairing their independence. But exempt organizations, healthcare organizations, you know, have very similar requirements in place. They're not as strict. You know, they get a little stricter when the organization may you know, receive and spend federal funds. But you know, generally making sure that you know, the committee has a good understanding of you know, what outside advisors are doing. And you know, the best discussions are the ones to, to better understand what capabilities of the firms may be. It isn't always an absolute no. I think there's a, a fair amount of opportunity for you know, existing auditors to do some detailed work and review and, and help on technical matters. Uh, there certainly are some things that are best 
separated between a primary auditor and maybe another firm. But with respect to the audit committee, I think you know one of the things that we would advise is just making sure that the audit committee understands the scope of work that's done, who the providers are, you know, who they're reporting to. Uh, for example, if uh, firm A is doing outside audit, firm B is doing internal audit, another firm maybe is doing tax, just understanding who's coordinating all that work and then how you know, each of those uh, engagements are being monitored to make sure that those firms aren't overstepping uh, their bounds and, and doing work that uh, they shouldn't be doing that could put themselves, their own independence uh, in jeopardy. Scott, what would your advice be to the audit committee of one of your clients where committee members are asking, why is this issue coming up again? I thought we dealt with this 20 years ago. And what should we as an audit committee be doing anything with respect to our relationship with our auditor? Yeah, I think the you know, the, the answer here is really to continue to, to monitor the, the relationships. And, and it is fair that, you know, the questions do continue to come up as to what is an approved service, what's uh, what, you know, what services need to be you know, reviewed you know, carefully by the audit committee. Going back to our discussion around charter, you know, a good point to make sure that the audit committee knows, you know, what they're responsible for engaging. So, you know, that typically would be the external audit, perhaps the tax services, but it might not include other advisory services. So making sure there's clear uh, documentation in the in the charter to, to make sure that the committee understands what they are uh, responsible for, or at least understanding, and also establishing that kind of communication with the CFO. Say, if you're going to you know, go through a process to hire a firm to do a risk assessment or to do our outside, to do you know, internal audit on an outsourced basis. That's something that, you know, we as the audit committee want to make sure we understand and approve as part of our, as part of our charter. So just, again, getting back to, you know, continuing to review and refresh the charter to make sure it reflects the underlying environment and complexity of the organization. And perhaps, I guess, asking staff to the committee, to make sure there's there's a kind of a left-hand, right-hand review, with especially within large organizations, does the audit committee have a handle on the extent to which other departments and other offices within the health system or, other, or, or the exempt organization are utilizing the outside audit, just so that something doesn't fall between the cracks? Exactly. And, and just you know, to get a little more complicated here, you know, for those larger organizations that have international activities, it's very, very easy to trip up auditor independence with matters such as you know, bookkeeping. So many of our clients now have operations all over the world. They hire you know, a firm to do local bookkeeping and maybe perhaps process payroll for the employees in you, know, you pick the country location. That small project you know, may be enough to impair the auditor's independence at the uh, US level. Now the firms have process in place so that you know, the firms are checking to make sure before they take on that type of work. But you know, there's always the risk that you know, smaller affiliate, you know, may, you know, have a local friend at a firm and they get hired before even checking the process. And next thing you know, uh, there's a problem. So to your point, making sure to understand, you know, who has hiring authority and where to make sure to, to minimize the risk of uh, those types of situations. Scott, as you and I will recall, one of the, the biggest and most critical factual developments that prompted Sarbanes-Oxley was in the Enron circumstances involving off-balance sheet entries and related parties and unusual partnerships that were created to keep uh, debt and other risk matters off the books. But uh, could you talk a little bit about the continuing impact of Sarbanes' treatment of related parties and how that affects large organizations, and especially in healthcare? Sure. I think, you know, here, you know, we continue to see, you know, organizations that create you know, related parties for a variety of uh, reasons, you know, many of which are very valid, you know, for purposes of carrying out the mission and getting done what needs to be done. 
But this is another example of something that the audit committee does need to pay attention to, which is, you know, how are these organizations, you know, related? You know, what is the actual ownership, if any? What's the control? Who's appointing board members? Who's appointing members of management? Are there any members of management? Are they using shared uh, members of management? And where it starts to get a little tricky and where you and I have seen some clients that have had some problems is that you know, when these related organizations don't necessarily have a, a full-time CEO, but they're using a CEO or other officers from the primary organization, and then also compensating them, there could be some compensation challenges there where you know there could be double or triple dipping of, of compensation. And that, you know, if done properly, that that doesn't create a problem. But if the intent is to you know basically pay someone you know for three jobs, well, in fact, they're only working one, uh, that can be you know a problem uh, where you know there's uh, you know some excess compensation being paid. And if there isn't proper attention and oversight, uh, there's certainly risk of that uh, that situation popping up. And I think the other piece is just as new entities are being created, really understanding what the true business purpose is. You know, we have, for example, a number of uh, association type clients that have multiple foundations under their umbrella, all with very unique purposes, but it, it may be possible to combine those foundations so that you know, there's one larger umbrella organizations that, organization that can still fulfill uh, the objectives of what they're looking to do, but without the need of having you know, four different tax filings, you know, separate you know, existences you know, in the eyes of the IRS and donors that would perhaps make it a little clearer and not you know, run the risk of you know, having any, any types of issues with, uh, you know, with transactions in and amongst those organizations. Well, along those uh, lines, Scott, could you talk a little bit more about audit committee administration and, and how the act has affected that as well? With respect to related parties? Yeah, or just generally speaking. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the you know, generally you know, we're seeing much better memorialization of audit committee you know, meetings and responsibilities. So we talked about uh, you know, agendas and charters, but equally important is the maintaining of good minutes you know, to show you know, what uh, was uh, discussed and when, you know, what conclusions were reached, you know, making sure to go through the proper process of you know, approval of minutes, approval of draft financial statements, final financial statements. You know, whatever is called for in the charter, I would say that we we still do see committees getting tripped up in uh, not understanding, are, are we approving a draft here? Are we approving the final statements here? Does the board approve the final statements? If that question comes up, then clearly it's not been you know, properly documented or memorialized as to who has that responsibility. So there does remain some opportunity to continue to, you know, clean up you know, the way you know, committees are are being run, and then ultimately how they're memorializing their decisions and responsibilities. Because as you know, you know, it only becomes a problem you know down the road if there's a question of well, what exactly was the committee doing? And you look back at the minutes, and well, geez, the minutes really aren't all that complete, or they weren't properly approved. Then it's really hard to reconstruct you know what exactly happened during those meetings. Scott, kind of looking back, where do you think if you uh, Sarbanes has had the greatest impact on on organizations and their governance? Yeah, sitting as an auditor, I think it, it would really be in the area of just better, more consistent communication between the audit committee and the auditor. You know, so better engagement, also absolute better clarity that you know the audit committee is responsible for engaging uh, the auditor, uh, that the independence you know exists between the two. And that, you know, the responsibility of the auditor is through is to governance and the audit committee. You know, we work with management, have very close relationship with management. You know, they facilitate getting you know, the work done that needs to be done. 
but the priority really needs to to be to maintain that relationship you know with the independent board members to make sure that there is you know that proper level uh, of engagement and that and that you know really has been you know driven home as a, as, a, as certainly a benefit of laying out you know why why these relationships need to exist you know dating back you know now 20 years to to the advent of Sarbanes you know the anniversary provides a bit of a, a opportunity for board leadership and financial and audit leaders within the organization legal and the legal department to have a briefing to the board on, on some of these issues what are the lessons from Sarbanes that you think are most important to review at this time with board members audit and finance committee members compliance committee members where are the greatest need for refresher updates on these topics Sure, sure. I think the just to run through these in in maybe no particular order, but audit committees. I think you know continuing to you know look at the composition of the committees, making sure that you know there is you know a good a good enough number to make sure there's always a good quorum and good engagement with the the auditors. Uh, we talked about you know, maintaining of you know good you know minutes and uh, memorializing discussions and what uh, you know what's concluded upon, what's approved on, and making sure that. You know, all all these items are you know done with the right amount of time, and that there's the right amount of time budgeted, allocated for good, healthy discussion uh, with uh, management, with the auditor, with counsel. You know, all in general session, and then also uh, executive session, and making sure that executive sessions are in fact you know always scheduled. And if they're not needed, they can always be you know concluded as not needed in executive session, as opposed to asking in front of everybody, hey, do we need an executive session today? I always find that a curious question because the minute that I would say yes, I'm going to make management very nervous, even if I had nothing to say. But the open-ended nature of that question in front of the full audience is probably not a good one uh, to pose in front of the full group. And then with respect to you know independence, I, I think you know we've talked a little bit about the you know, need for ongoing education to the committees of you know not only what the auditor, uh, the, the primary audit firm can do, but more importantly, what are the other firms that are engaged uh, by the organization doing and making sure that there isn't perhaps work being done by a firm that the audit committee should have a better understanding of the scope of work, the nature of the work, and then also want to see the results of the work. So, for example, if you know, a risk assessment was being completed for purposes of planning a, an internal audit program for an organization that didn't have one before, audit committee is going to want to see that and understand what was identified and perhaps offer some input as to you know what could be done you know to continue to refine uh, such a program, and then last but not least with respect to you know, related parties, I think we've talked about you know the you know just continuing to understand org structure, organization structure of nonprofits, what falls under the umbrella of your organization, you know what's related directly, indirectly, you know who controls these organizations, who's employed by these organizations, what type of uh, you know cost sharing arrangements are in place, are they all you know properly at, at arm's length. And also just looking to make sure that, you know, again, not presuming there's a problem, but making sure if there's any type of compensation, that it's all properly memorialized and approved by compensation committees and other members of the board to make sure that that all is, is properly documented. Scott, dust off your crystal ball for a second. Is there anything in this area that Sarbanes was intended to address that you feel may still be the subject of legislation in the future or regulation? Is there another shoe to drop now that some of these issues are beginning to be discussed in the, in the public discourse? I, I can't think of anything that you know would be a real you know showstopper in terms of something that would say, boy, we never had thought about this before. I think it just continues to be around good public disclosure of financial statements, of tax filings, making sure that organizations are reminded that that certainly is 
uh, not only a you know, good practice, but an expected practice that that information is available. And I expect that the more transparency and what you know, the more organizations can share on a timely basis, that will you know keep the regulators you know a little more at bay, not you know being concerned that they're somehow trying to conceal something by by not publicly disclosing their information. Well, you know, that leads me to my final question. We periodically read about scandals in foreign countries regarding accounting and disclosure and things of that nature. But yet it doesn't seem to me that that we really have had a similar event in the United States for many, many years. Has Sarbanes worked, Scott? As someone that has you know, grown up through the Sarbanes, the pre-Sarbanes and now the post-Sarbanes world, I'd like to think that it has. There's really been a you know, much greater feeling of comfort of individuals that have concerns to you know, use whistleblower hotlines to report to audit committees, to report to, you know, third party uh, ethics uh, type uh, hotlines, any kind of concerns. Uh, and all that really was facilitated by the act, you know, 20 years ago, making it much easier for organizations or individuals to report concerns and for protections to be put in place for people to, you know, bring issues forward and not, you know, fear, you know, losing their job or, or other issues uh, with respect to their employer. Scott, what an interesting set of observations. We thank you again for coming by and helping us celebrate the 20th anniversary of Christmas. We'll come to your office and cut the cake. I'm sure you've got one out there for us. Scott Steffens has provided us with, I think, just a terrific reminder of the lasting impact of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act on corporate responsibility, corporate governance, corporate compliance, corporate finance. It's a long list. And Scott certainly confirmed the continued importance that board members I think especially those serving on the finance and audit committees need to have a sense of the issues Sarbanes was intended to address. It's a law that, as Scott has pointed out, continues to have a major impact on corporate governance and on audit, compliance, and financial management. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. There you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future episodes and to re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Peregrine, saying thanks for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.